0: Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Uh, Just some housekeeping stuff. As you've been listening, I've been inviting you to read my book, Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. It's at Desert Book and Amazon, and I really appreciate you leaving reviews at both of those places, as well as at iTunes for the podcast. That's the thing that helps me the most. You can't donate, but you can leave reviews. Appreciate all of you that are doing that and sharing the book. Um, my guest on today's podcast, recording this on a March day on a Sunday afternoon, I'm still in my tie from church. I feel very churchy right now, is my friend Kate Maurer. Welcome to the podcast, Kate. Thank you. Um, I'm going to introduce Kate's come prepared, and I'm going to introduce kind of an overview of the podcast. But let me just share with you the things we talked about before we recorded. Kate has spent a lot of time in thought and prayer about what she should share today. She takes this really seriously. And one of our hopes is any of you that are suicidal or are filled with suicidal ideation or looking for a little more hope in your life, that the things Kate shares will be nuggets that will help you in particular um, have more hope and more perspective and help bring us together. So we pray that this podcast will be helpful for you. Um, And the first things Kate's going to talk about is how she's talking about things she didn't anticipate talking about in the podcast and how the Spirit has guided her this week in a different direction. The next thing she's going to talk about is how she identifies. And just so you know, she identifies as a non-binary lesbian Latter-day Saint. Third thing she's going to talk about is her work. Um, I'll give you just an idea of what she does. She's in her early 30s. Um, She teaches at the University of California in Riverside. She teaches um, world history, 20th century. Concurrent with that, she's a PhD candidate in her fourth year, also at the University of California at Riverside, um, with a focus in 20th century Romanian history. So in this part of the podcast, she's going to talk about um, Eastern Europe history and especially how that um, history applies to um, oppression and and just some helpful insights there from her academic work and her own personal journey. Um, Then she's going to talk about growing up in a family with wonderful parents um, that are intellectuals and just how that was part of her journey and also talk about bipolar, PTSD, and anxiety. And um, those and navigating those challenges is maybe the right word. How's that for an introduction, Kate?
1: That was a great introduction. Thank you so
0: much. You bet. And um, let's just get started. Tell our listeners of why you, we've been trading emails about this podcast for a long time. We were going to do it remotely via Zoom, but you happen to be in Utah, so we're doing it together. And just talk about how what you're talking about today is not what you anticipated.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, we've known, we've been in contact for several years. It's very nice to True. formally meet you. And um, I, I do want to say that I appreciate everything that you're doing. I want to make that um, known right up front that you're doing really important work and, and we appreciate that as a community. I think um, I, I could say that many you, of us Kate. really, really appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, so we we started exchanging emails about a month ago, and I, being a PhD student, thought I'm gonna approach this like I would a paper. I would, I'm gonna approach this like I would um, any other research topic, and so I really dove into. Well, I started out with a prayer. And said, I want to help somebody. You know, Heavenly Father, how can I? Who can I help, and how? And then I just, I dove in. So I started reading lots of books, um, listening to conference talks again, just rethinking through kind of a narrative of of what I could talk about, um, particularly about gender, because I think that that's... a Gender is a confusing topic for a lot of people right now, especially. And so I wanted to make that a little bit more explicit and clear. So I started thinking a lot about bodies and that sort of thing and looking into. um, One of my favorite talks is going to be surprising probably to many, many listeners. It's a BYU devotional. It's uh, from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland from 1988. And there's a lot of stuff in there that I hesitate about. But um, it's something that I've found really important in my life at, since coming back to church. Um, I had a long break away from from the church. I, I stepped away when I was 17 um, after experiencing a sexual assault and my grandpa dying. And wow. those two things together were just very traumatic and i took my anger out on the church and
0: it's okay
1: and and yeah heavenly father so it took me a long time and i had this after 9 years i had this really remarkable conversion um and when i came back one of the first lessons was this talk in relief society and It's called Souls, Symbols, and Sacraments by Jeffrey Holland. And um, in it, he talks about passion. He talks about how passion can go in a couple of different ways. When we're thinking about passion, he says, almost always fire comes up. And um, that fire can either light our way or it can destroy us. And I just think that's really interesting. This talk is about the law of chastity, which is why it's probably um, interesting that I would be bringing it up. However, in that talk, he specifically outlines that the soul in in Latter-day Saints theology, the soul is our spirit and our body combined. And that's a really important element, I think, for this entire story. So I want, I want us to be thinking about what our soul means and what our body means and how we can be more in touch with, with both our spirit and our body, because sometimes we let our bodies, we don't think enough about our bodies. So that's what I expected to talk on. It, it, uh, since, though, this week, last Sunday, I was getting all geared up. I said a prayer, you know, Heavenly Father, let me know what to talk about next Sunday. And that topic switched uh, over the course of the week, just due to circumstances and thinking about really hard things in particular suicide and suicidal ideation and how to, how to deal with that. What triggers it, how, um, how to help, and I, I don't talk about this topic very often. When I give my story, I kind of skip over those moments a little bit. I just kind of dab at them. Um, when I was uh, nineteen, I actually, um, I, I attempted suicide. I was in the I was in the hospital for a couple of weeks. It was. A really, really challenging time. And it's been really, really challenging trying to, to figure all of that out. So we're going to kind of go in this other direction, even though I would love to be talking so much more about the body. I think it is important for us to be thinking about the body in this. Um, in Thanks this. for
0: talking about this. Thanks for talking about your own suicide attempt. That just takes courage to say that out loud and I think it helps listeners know that you're real and you know this space and you can help other listeners that feel the same way.
1: Thank you. Um, Yeah. So that's where where we'll get. I'm going to try to to get through some of these other topics um, in order to get there. I think that these are important topics that I really do want to talk about. First of all, my identity, I identify as a non-binary lesbian. Sometimes you'll hear me identify as a non-binary butch lesbian. And um, that comes from a very specific context. Um, I came out when I was 17 to my family, my parent, my mom, and my brother, and it was not received well. Um, and I knew Previous to to coming out, that it probably wouldn't go very well, and um, that it was it was important. So coming coming out my sexuality, I came out as bisexual initially, and I don't want to. I want to make sure that we're not erasing um, the bisexual experience. The bisexual experience is a real experience, but this is my what what I said. I said I'm I'm bisexual. Um, but I recognized that I only liked um other women, other girls. And um because that part of me was cut off, <laughs> cut off so early, I think it's important for me to identify as lesbian because my ass- assigned sex at birth is um, really impacted my sexual development. So I, I keep that and, and I kind of keep it as a something that I, I now get to rejoice in where I used to to not be able to. So I, I keep the lesbian um, as part of my identity. Non-binary is, is relatively new to me. I only came out um, in November. I came out publicly, officially uh, as a lesbian. Two years ago, so I've, I'm a little bit more comfortable with that. But I came out as non-binary in November, and that's been um, just like a, a long growing process. There were a lot of talks that I had with other people. Can I be both these things at the same time? And within the intellectual community, this is like a common thing to talk about, especially among historians, because we talk about gender so often that. They were my friends. Have been comfortable talking to me about uh, um, identifying as both non-binary and lesbian. Non-binary meaning that I do not identify as man or woman. Um, I think those are um, categories that have they're they're categories that we. place a lot of emphasis on and if you look at the history of those categories you recognize that perhaps we can we can examine those differently um that there are moments in history when we decided this is what we're going to make this into a binary and i would love to talk with anybody about that i'm i'm totally into the history of uh, gender and um, the history of science. I actually study the history of science, so I know a little bit about the history of science of of gender and sex. And so if you want to talk with me, i'm I'm happy to do that i don't I don't think I can get into any more of that here, though. Um, but that's how I d- identify. Um, I also identify as a Latter day saint, and I don't routinely go to church. I keep in contact with my bishop. Um, he's a really great person. I Engage in firesides. I engage in um, lots of Latter-day Saint um, things. Uh, just church, I don't feel is a safe place for me right now, and that might change. But for right now, that's not that's not where I
0: fit. Thanks for sharing that about you a little bit more. Tell us our tell our listeners the pronouns you use.
1: Great question. Thank you. I use she and they. Um, that was also a long discussion. One of my friends um, at the history, <laughs> history department at UCR said, I identify as she whatever. And that was a breakthrough moment for me. I thought, oh, I can, I don't have to be they I can be she and they and and negotiate those a little bit more and that was a really freeing thing to hear. So yeah, my pronouns are she, they.
0: And listeners, I think, you know, I I've been in this space five years, but I I would have heard the word gender and thought of sexual orientation. And everything Kate's using the word gender, and correct me if I misspeak, is regarding how she feels and she identifies as non-binary and has nothing to do with her sexual orientation it's just her gender and how she feels uh, on the man woman spectrum if that's okay to say that you know and you're on both spectrums that way you feel both and and that's why i use they and she and then separate from that is sexual orientation um and that so the word gender i think has been this umbrella term in my life in the church that we've referred to um, sexual orientation and gender identity. And I think what I'm hearing from people like you is gender uh, is not about sexual orientation. It's about how you feel inside and what gender you, you feel. Is that any more education for us or is that okay?
1: Yes, that's great. You're you're speaking to things that I sort of skipped over. So thank you for pulling reining me back in.
0: Well, you're good. I'm just if there's any new <laughs> listeners that just on vocabulary one oh one.
1: So so um I do think it's important to distinguish between sex and gender. So I think that that is something that um, a lot of people if you're new to gender you, gender studies or thinking about gender you don't. Now,
0: recognize. when you say sex are you talking sexual orientation or biological sex?
1: Biological sex.
0: Yeah, talk about then talk about the difference biological sex and gender.
1: So biological sex and and it can be um this can be defined in a lot of different ways. So I, uh, as I identify, as I, not as I identify, but as I um, define sex, sex is uh, the biological traits that when one is born, you have to fill out your form of the little baby. And it says, is this baby um, a boy or girl? Or sometimes the, there's the options for intersex. And that just means it's the, the child you might not know whether the child is, has enough characteristics to be, to identify, to identify that child as a boy or a girl. Well, that system um, is not as concrete as we think it is. These differences are not as concrete as we imagine them to be. So when I talk about, um, I talk a lot about chromosomes and thinking about the way that we understand chromosomes. There's a lot of research that goes into that. So sex is about what you've been assigned, um, on your birth certificate. So oftentimes I will say, I will talk about my assigned gender at birth, um, gender or assigned sex at birth. My gender or what gender is gender is more, uh, um, um, it is how you identify, but also how you think about masculinity and femininity and how the ha- and what we assign to be masculine and what we assign to be feminine. And we tend to only think of things in those terms that there isn't something else. So, so certain traits are masculine, certain traits are feminine. You might have somebody... I don't know, maybe you have on this podcast, you might have somebody who identifies as agender and that means they don't, uh, don't feel like either. I identify as gender expansive, meaning that I think I, I have, I have a strong affinity for masculine and feminine traits within me that don't make sense um, to fit into either category. Going to Relief Society is really uncomfortable for me. If I were to go to Elder's Quorum, it would also be uncomfortable for me. Um, I don't, I don't feel the same as either of those things.
0: Great job! It's one of the finest explanations I've heard of that, Kate. And
1: can I can I just insert? Can I just insert really quickly? This is an kind of on the fly definition. Um, You on this podcast, you've had. Taylor Petrie, yeah. who wrote Tabernacles of Clay, um, Tabernacles of Clay. If you just read the introduction of that book, he outlines so well these distinctions, um, much better than I can right now. Um, and listening to his podcast, he he also is able to uh, to talk about those differences really well. So I re- highly recommend if you want to con- if you want to continue learning about that to check out Dr. Taylor Petrie and just, Tabernacles of Clay.
0: Um, thank you for just sharing your experience. And I, one of the things we're trying to do in this podcast is just validate everybody's experience. Even if I don't experience any of some of the feelings you feel, I don't want to project my experience on you or invalidate your experience and, or to dismiss it as whatever I might say to dismiss your lived experience. This is the podcast where... You know, we don't do that. In fact, we elevate your experience to help us come together as the body of Christ and help more and bear in comfort. And I love Elder Cook's quote, unity and diversity. It's not unity and sameness, it's unity in diversity. And that's where that's the holy grail. That's the finish line. That's what we're trying to do in the world, in the church, in our society. But we need to have people like you step forward and share your stories so that we can do that. And often it's people like you that have already, that have principles that could help us bring us together because you're, you're in all these different spaces right now. Talk, and I love that you're, call yourself a Latter-day Saint, but I love, I'm completely fine that you decide how you're going to do that, that works best for you. And I, I just trust you um, that you're doing that. And it sounds like you got a bishop that trusts you and is not sort of saying, well, the to be a Latter-day Saint, this is the nine things you got to do on your checklist, otherwise you're out of here. I sense he is saying, Kate, you do this the way you f- feel works for you, and I'll walk with you. Talk more about that, because it sounds like there's a good relationship there.
1: Yes, thank you. Yes, um, my bishop is—I don't want to disclose his name to, to protect him, but he is um, just a good person. Um, I don't use that qualifier very often because I think that you can, you can identify somebody as many different things be- that describe somebody better as good, than good. But he um, has protected me. He has talked with me. He's listened to me. And I think listening is, as you know, probably um, the, the, the best way to love somebody is to know where they come from. And he definitely does that. So I'm glad you asked this question because I, um, as I mentioned, I had this conversion. Um, I think I was 26. Now I can't think of when it was. But I had a conversion when I was 26. Before that, I was completely distant from the church. Um, I had this moment where the pinnacle moment, I had a visionary experience. That mm-hmm. I, I interpret as an, a visionary experience and the pinnacle moment of it. Um, was a scripture. But before I get to that scripture, I had to tell you my, one of my younger brothers and I, um, he was on a mission in California, actually during prop eight. So it was a very like interesting time for all of us, but he was on a mission and he sent me this song and it's a song called, um, please come home by Dustin Kinstrew. And we really, are punk rockers at my house. And Dustin Kensher was a punk rocker turned Christian star. And this song I loved, I just, it felt so good to me. So it was about this person coming back to God. And my brother wrote back from the mission, well, do you know what, what that song is? And I was like, if it's from the scriptures, I'm going to be so upset. And he's like, it's the prodigal son chapter. And I was like, ah, <laughs> But, um, so I have this, I'm, that was when I was 23 ish, I guess. And now I'm 26 in the middle of this visionary experience. And I crawl back into bed after asking Heavenly Father, what do I do? And I have this distinct impression to pull open the scriptures that I've kept next to my bedside for all of those nine years. And, um, I open up, I, it, this comes to my mind, go to Luke. So I open up to Luke and Luke 14. And I'm like, yeah, this is like, this is, a, this is a good chapter. I see why I'm reading this and I flip the page and it's
0: the prodigal son.
1: It's chapter 15, the prodigal son. So um, I think what's really challenging is to navigate having this really profound spiritual experience that the next day entirely changed my life. I went from being one way to the very next day being somebody different. And I can't deny that part about me. It's built into me. And for somebody to ask me to not believe that is to, to deny my own personal revelation, but also this intimate moment between me and my Heavenly Father. And that's, and I feel similarly to being a non binary lesbian. This is a part of me. You're, don't ask me to let go of that either. So both those things can exist at once. And to ask me to deny either is to ask me to deny, to deny who I am or my own. Thoughts and experiences.
0: It's really powerful. And I do recognize that sometimes, as Latter day Saints, we want you to deny your sexual orientation or being non binary. And as sometimes the LGBT community would want you to deny being a Latter day Saint or religion in general. And I think that, I think what you're helping us do and what many others are helping us to do is to connect those two worlds and show that they we're working to bring those two worlds together because I think that's what Christ wants us to do. And But it's people like you that are in both of these worlds and you have truth in both of these worlds that are bravely walking forward and sharing your experience that help us know how to do it. It takes a lot of courage to do what you're doing. Thank you. But I love you said, don't make me deny one of these to validate the other or vice versa. They're, all of this is part of who I am. Talk about, unless you want to talk any more about that, talk about your work. Um, you're t- going to maybe take us to Eastern Europe. We can't travel <laughs> with COVID much, but you're going to take us there.
1: I know we can't travel with COVID. I was supposed to go to Romania last year. So I do my um, field work in Romania um, on the Black Sea. And I was, I, I'm a, I'm a historian, so I work in archives. That's, what, that's how I find what I am going to write about. It's not just here's history and here's how it goes. Like You have to find the evidence to support it, right? So um, I do that in Romania. I also have been recently invited to work with gender and sexuality um, kind of think tanks in the Czech Republic of all places. So, that's cool. <laughs> So um these worlds these worlds also intersect a lot too. Talk talk about history you have to also know things and talk be able to talk about gender theory if you're a historian or getting a PhD in history right now um you you do have to speak to some to some extent about gender and even sexuality. So um yeah, I that's where that's where I work. But I wanted to talk a little bit about history as a discipline. So we expect that history is just truth and it runs like fact, 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 fact. And that leads to some outcome that is history. At least this is how my students perceive history, that you, it's just a series of events or a series of things. And that just ends up being what history is. And it's important for us to recognize that history is a narrative, and history is um, that lots of things can be true at once. so I want this is not my experience. I'm not speaking to my experience, but I do want us to recognize, especially um, given President Oak's call um, recently, uh, to think about Oppressed peoples and their intersection with history, and we have we oftentimes think um, well, first of all, that history runs in a certain in a certain way and that we should tell it in a certain way, but that there are decisions that are made, right? Every time we're thinking about um, the history of the United States, there isn't just the history of the United States. there are decisions made and there are narratives that are that are um, completed all along the way. And there are, that means there are narratives that are left out. So if we speak specifically about U.S. history, and I and I, ha- I do have a BA in history, so in, so I do have some background in the U.S. as well, but um, if we're thinking about U.S. specifically, and we're thinking about this is a country of slavery, <laughs> Like a country country that has had slavery. Um, And then we think, well, we got rid of that. But then we moved on to something different. We moved on to um, Jim Crow. And Jim Crow didn't actually end until the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s, 1964, 1965. And then we have something new, a new type of Jim Crow, where we... We don't really, um, we haven't really let go of the previous legacy of Jim Crow. So every new period is reflecting on an old period. And the way that we can think about that as people who are, uh, are looking at that, that history and saying, look how much progress, look, we've made a whole lot of progress over that whole time. You can also look at that and say, there's been a lot of trauma over that time, and that trauma doesn't go away just because slavery ends. Doesn't mean that slaves or or uh, enslaved people or their children don't are no longer have that legacy within them, right? And this makes sense for um, lots of communities. So if if we were to switch our narrative about the way we tell history. We're to switch the way we think about things. We could now tell a whole new story that's based on trauma. We could tell a new story that's based on, um, um, yeah, intergenerational trauma and, and just thinking about those, the way that we can tell history differently if we weren't always thinking about in terms of progress and making progress. So I think that's important for me to say here because there are lots of different stories, exactly as you've said, and history works the same way. How do we think about the same story in a different timeline, meaning something different?
0: I love that. Just keep talking about that.
1: So somebody asked me, um, probably like a year ago, um, I I mentioned this and they said, whoa, what about um, Laban and Nephi? (laughs) What if we told the scriptures from Laban's perspective or even from Laban and Lemuel's perspective, right? Um, Those stories are still valid. Those stories are still their experiences. And I think it's important for us to recognize that everybody's story and everybody's own experience is valid. Um, so I think that's just a way that we can connect that more with um, our, with stuff that we're engaging in all, of, all the time, which is scriptures. How do you engage with um, these other stories? And if you have more sympathy um, or empathy, perhaps, for these other stories, does that diminish from Nephi? I don't think so. I think that Nephi's story... And Laban's story together. If they're told together, you can have empathy for both, and you can also reflect on where you want to be and who you, what choices you would like to make um, better, and whose whose choice you would like to emulate better.
0: I love that. I love, yeah. Even Laban probably has a story that we've never read. Um, talk just more about sometimes. Um, people that um, have expertise in history, that long view of the past brings perspective for today that's often very helpful, um, especially when you talk about oppression and some of the things that you've researched and understand in Romania and Eastern Europe. Do you want to talk about how any of that applies to the issues of day today that can help us just help us as a society?
1: I think that we think that um The LGBTQ, I guess, I think we think of it sometimes as a movement and that it's cropped out of nowhere and that it's just new. But actually, it's not new and it's changed over time. So, for instance, in Poland, um, Poland was the first country to get rid of any um, criminalization laws against homosexuality. In 1933. So if you're thinking about what's happening in 1933 um, and and what Europe looks like and what Germany looks like and what Poland looks like, this moment is just like that fascinated me that Poland is the place that this happens, especially if you don't know much about Poland. Poland is Eastern Europe um, and it also um, is heavily Catholic, it's a, is a primarily Catholic country. So it's interesting that this is the place. It's not England. It's not France. Yeah. You might think it would be France. No, it's Poland. And now, so let's just say we talk about that in 1933. And now we look at Poland. Poland today, a third of the country is, um, de- has declared itself LGBTQ or LGBT, which is the European um, acronym, LGBT Free Zones. They have LGBT free zones saying we don't have any, any LGBT people in these um, counties, a third of the country. And how do you go from 1933 being this place that's so welcoming to today where it's probably the most oppressive Hungary and Poland are are in a race race to try to be the most oppressive in Europe. How do you go? um, How do you get there? And there's a lot of stuff that happens, particularly the Cold War, influence from Russia, all sorts of really interesting stuff that I can't get into here, but I want to write a paper. But um, if we're... If we're constantly thinking about the world in terms of progress, we don't recognize that things actually just kind of change and there are different perspectives at different times. And this LGBTQ movement within even just if we're just thinking about the church is not new. It's something that's just been transformed over time and there have been a lot of global factors that have influenced that. For, for instance in in the church itself the Cold War was very influential in um, the way we think about about these issues.
0: That's fascinating about 1933 in Poland and just where Poland and Hungary are now. And I recognize in our own church we didn't really talk about LGBTQ or same sex attraction. We didn't have that language, and you know, until my lifetime. I was born in 1961, and the church obviously had been organized long before 1961. And there were, you know people who identified as gay, I don't know what vocabulary they would have used, but that's something that's new in our church to talk about this as much as we have. Um, But it's something that I think so has been there. As I'm reading some of the history, there were probably Latter-day Saints who identified as non-heterosexual since the beginning of time in our church and in our society and our world.
1: So again, I'm going to just Input right now, um, Tabernacles of Clay by Taylor Petrie. He he outlines the specific change in 1948. He pinpoints um, this moment in 1948 when when that change happens and why. So so Good. if you're interested in that, I suggest that book once again.
0: And I think being educated on our past helps us understand how to minister and help and. Support each other so i I'm glad that Taylor wrote that book and he's been on the podcast and we understand our history. I think being part of the latter day saint is owning and knowing our history, and sometimes that can be a little complicated at times to know everything we've said and done in the past and but I think as a latter day saint I'm glad i I don't claim to be an expert, but I do want to understand our history and it helps me perhaps. If some of our history is things that we wish we hadn't have done help me not repeat the same mistakes and learn from the history in a positive way, and to me that's part of my responsibility is more education, more understanding the science helps me understand certainly the thing that's changed in my lifetime within the church and with my own personal belief is sexual orientation is not a choice. Um, society said people can choose that and unchoose that, and so I just put that all on gay people to become straight again because they did something or somebody else did something. And now we know um, in our church and society that that's not true. Um, gay and lesbian people come this way. And so it's our responsibility to create a feeling of belonging and needed versus put it all back on them to somehow become straight. Keep Just keep talking about Eastern Europe. I don't know if you want to talk about growing up um, and your family situation. Um, I'd love you to talk to those that are suicidal at some point in this podcast and, and what they can do and what you did kind of if you could talk to your 19-year-old self um, now that you're not 19 anymore in a better spot. So that's kind of three different things. <laughs> you know, I'll just let you go where you want to go.
1: Yeah, I think that talking about my family um, and growing up in my household is really helpful in thinking through okay. how to um, how to talk about suicidal ideation. So. My parents are, when I was growing up, they were actually both graduate students at the University of Utah. And so our Sunday conversations for all of my life, my, our Sunday conversations have been um, hours long. We sit around the table for hours and talk about politics. And so my dad, my dad's parents, my grandparents, um, we used to go to their house every Sunday and sit for hours and talk about politics. And then Changed for them to come to our house and every Sunday for hours just sitting around the table and thinking about these things. And they, I mean, if my grandparents were here, they'd be totally interested in this Poland 1933 stuff. This would be something that we would talk about for a long time. Uh, That's the sort of atmosphere that I grew up in that is very cerebral, it's very intellectual, it's very um, analytical. So if you're going to make an argument at that Sunday kitchen table, you better be able to make it in such a way that is convincing from a logical standpoint. And I have to mention that my, my dad is a philosopher. It's not just like any normal graduate student. He was a, he's a philosophy professor at BYU now. And so. It's awesome. (laughs) yeah it is awesome, and And it's created a lot of uh, really interesting talks for us, but also helped us um, think through a lot of helped me learn how to think through a lot of things. So I can intellectualize any problem. <laughs> um, and I and somehow that like makes it outside of yourself. When you can see this these things outside of your own self, you can take yourself away. Um, this this is how philosophers do things. Lots of people think philosophy is about the big why questions, but philosophy is really about what do you do in certain situations to make a good outcome or what is the good? I think that is the major philosophy question. What is the good? And so... When you're thinking through those things, for instance, I think the most famous is um, discussion or thought is the trolley problem. I think this has been made pretty famous recently by the good police, Um, the trolley problem where what do you do in a certain circumstance? So if you can constantly be thinking about what would you do in this circumstance, then you're not really thinking about what am I doing? What am I currently doing? And you can, you can think about how to be better in a very intellectual way. And growing up in that house, again, very awesome. It's, it's given me a lot of skills. But learning that process without learning about how to deal with what was actually happening for me was really hard. So I, like I said, I am, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 18, which is as young as you can be to be diagnosed. Uh, I had lots of problems with um, suicidal ideation, but also this problem of feeling a lot of things and being in a house where feeling things was not thinking things. So why couldn't you just think yourself out of your emotions? Why are you crying about these things when you could just think through them? And I could. It was it was easy for me to think this is why I shouldn't feel this way. But the reality is I feel this way. <laughs> and how do you deal with that when you know what you should like you? You can't see me, but using air quotes, what I should be feeling and what I actually am feeling, uh, especially as a kid. Like, how do I how do I deal with all of that? And I knew that I was different very early. Um, I knew that I liked boy things, I guess you could say. Um, it was very It was, I was made very aware that liking boy things from a variety of different directions was not great. Uh, And so I had a lot of shame about that. I had a lot of shame about liking the things that I liked. I had a lot of shame about uh, feeling who, what I felt. And I had a lot of shame about liking girls. After about 13, I recognized I liked girls, I think more subconsciously than consciously, but there was something that I recognized. I was like, okay, these things are all wrong here. Here's a list of things that are wrong with me that I cannot intellectualize or I can intellectualize, but it doesn't help me not feel bad about it and not yeah. feel shame about it. And,
0: um, well said, really well said what you just said.
1: Thank you. Yeah. I, I, to cope with, The fact that I was feeling things that I could think myself out of, but couldn't feel myself out of, I started self-harming and I started, I think I started self-harming when I was 15 or 16 Um, as a way to say, here's the thing that I'm feeling. This is what, this is, this is real. It's not just inside my head. It's not just inside my pocket. This is a real thing. And you can see it, right? You can see it on me. I'm hurting. I'm hurting bad. And um, the reaction from my parents, from school officials, um, the reaction from a lot of people was, this is attention seeking. And it was attention-seeking. I was in need of help. I needed somebody to see what I was feeling. If you weren't going to listen to what I was feeling, you could at least see it. And so the reaction to my self-harm was pay less attention. Here's more shame and pay less attention to what's going on. And which is the opposite of what I needed. Um, So I've been doing a lot of research actually on the history, not the history, but the um, there's a movement where people are writing a lot about disability Christianity, disability Christian theology, I think is actually what they call it. And there's, Uh, It's kind of budding. So there's a lot of really interesting new ideas about this. And there's been a lot that I found really interesting about it. But one of the things, and I think this pertains a lot to members of the um, Latter-day Saint faith, is that we believe in this perfected body. We believe in a resurrection. We believe that... We, we have this theology that we talk about often. What does it mean to have a perfect body? And disability studies say, ah, one of the articles I read said, look at Christ. Christ comes back. He's resurrected. He comes back. And in Latter-day Saint theology, he comes back to the Americas. And what do you see about him? How do you know that he's Christ? He's got scars. The perfected body has scars. And that was like, whoa, mind-blowing to me. Um, it's something that I have been thinking a lot about recently. And that's really what I, I wanted to talk about today. But um was this whole new research that's really interesting, but I think it's really important for us to come back to that point that perhaps perfection includes bipolar disorder. Perhaps it includes PTSD and anxiety. And perhaps it includes my scars. But that's all really hard for me to talk about. I I felt like I had conquered those things after um, about 21. When I was 21, I saved up for a year. I worked really hard to study abroad in Greece. I left and I went to Greece. And I came as kind of an escape from this household where I felt like my emotions weren't um, treated as real. Um. Or important, and I just got to experience something new and different, and be kind of free of all those expectations, and it it changed me. I didn't think about suicides as often, Um, and I felt like I had conquered this thing. At a certain point, I felt conquer I conquered it. Um, a few years ago, I was engaged to uh, a man. And there were lots of complications with that relationship, um, including that I fell in love with a woman at the same time. And uh, he, I had, again, an experience of sexual assault by my fiance. So here I was, 17, and I've had that experience, and then again at 30. Uh two. And it's the same thing. I feel like I had gotten over this. Wow. I feel like I had recovered from all of these things. And now all of a sudden, all of these things start coming back. The PTSD comes back. The suicidal ideation comes back. These feelings about how do I deal with being a lesbian come back. And all of that shame comes back this, all the stuff that I felt that I had conquered. So mostly I don't talk about it. Mostly I deal with it by myself, but this week it was really hard. This week there were triggers. There are triggers often because I have a lot of things that can be triggered. Um, There were a lot of triggers this week and I was sitting in my car thinking, I don't want to live anymore. But I also don't know how to get out of this. <laughs> like, there's a lot of strings attached. I know that this is not going to be ideal for a lot of people. So, how do I deal with this? And part of bipolar disorder is you know that there's going to be a swing. So, I recognized that intellectual part of me yeah. that I had been taught. I recognize this is going to end. And if, even in just a few hours, it might be different. So, I think so usually what I would do is just wait out those few hours and it would be fine. Those few hours are the worst. They're miserable. They're at the bottom. Um, and so this week I've did something different that I've never done before. And that was, um I, I, I don't like to call other people. I don't like to call my friends or anything because then there's this it does burden somebody else um, to listen to that story. To say that it doesn't is inaccurate. That that person worries about you. That person um, has their own emotional reaction to that. So if I do call somebody, I talk about this intellectualized. I know this is going to end in four hours. So please know that, that this is going to be okay. I just need this moment. But I didn't want to do that. I didn't. I, I do that on very rare occasions when it's really, really bad. So, so this week I thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I often, I, I have a, I'm active on social media and on social media multiple times. I have said, go to the National Suicide Hotline and I have never done it. <laughs> and this week I did that. This week, I called on somebody who's there for those moments, those four hours when I need to talk to somebody who um, can listen to me and not carry that over past those four hours. And that was relieving. Wow. To recognize that I could receive, that I didn't have to do it alone, really. Is that I felt like I've carried this for so many years alone. That I would have to go through those really difficult four hours alone and just get through it. Um, A lot of times when I talk about this, I'll talk about the atonement uh, because I do think the atonement plays a really important role in this because the way we think about what the atonement is, the atonement is there for those moments. It's not just there for repentance, the atonement is there for the darkest moments when you're in your own Gethsemane. Uh, But there are other options as well. So actually, first I called the Trevor Project. If you don't know what the Trevor Project is, Trevor Project is specifically for um, LGBTQ youth and specifically to help with suicide prevention. They also have a hotline, but I am, too old (laughs) to call into the Trevor project. So I, they recommended, they had people to recommend And I said, no, I'm just going to call the national um, suicide hotline. So I did that. I just want to express that. My bipolar disorder actually makes it so I can do a lot of interesting things. I can work on four, papers and projects at once that are worthwhile and interesting and creative, but it also comes with these, this downside. This isn't, if we could, if we could see it as how do we maximize the, the good and, and take away the really, really difficult things, then, um, that would be, that would be the best way to approach it. If we could talk about suicide, and yeah, if we could talk about suicide and know that somebody can come out to the other side, that they aren't being a. We often think of ourselves as burdens. Those of us who experience suicidal ideation. If we can talk about it. And it not be the end of the world if, if people are cap- more capable of interacting and knowing that this might fade, that it's not going to be persistent for days and years on end, that it's going to go away. If we have more recognition for how that operates, how suicidal ideation functions in our lives, then other people are going to be able to help us more. Because we can reach out and not worry about being that burden anymore, we can. Other people can know that that we're going to be okay if we can just get through that little that that amount of time.
0: Kate, that's a really good segment. It's it's as fine a segment as we've done, and it's very multidimensional. You have this ability to talk about the intellectual side, the feeling side, the shame, the atonement. Um, to kind of bring that all together into a really healthy way of talking about this, um, I'm struck by a couple of things. I'm struck by the positive reference to scars. How cool is that? And Christ did come back with his scars, and they weren't limitations. They were part of his mortal journey that allowed him to help other people. And if we look at our scars in that sort of light, the disabilities, the things that are hard— And sexual orientation is not like a scar in the sense that something we caused upon ourselves It's just how we're created. Um, But if we look at living with sexual minorities, a gender minority can create scars. (laughs) Um, But I just think that then we're able to help and heal people. I love you talking about shame because it seems like all the shame you felt was was societally driven, culturally driven, church driven that just brought all this shame about how you were feeling that was outside of your control to change. And so of course you just turn to self-harm you. It seems like a pretty logical thing, not inviting listeners to turn to self-harm if you feel shame, but it seems like a pretty logical coping mechanism. And then therapists have taught me about the bottom of the iceberg. Often what we see at the top of the iceberg, like self-harming in ourselves or others, is really not what's going on. You have to sort of put that on the shelf, and a good therapist can get to the bottom of the iceberg to understand what's really going on there. And you've done that in your own life to be able to understand, and, um, and now you're in the light. Um, and I agree, the atonement can play a role to heal broken hearts. It can't replace a therapist, but it can heal. Um, It's just a really good segment. The National Suicide Hotline um, is 800-273-8255. I love you called it. I love you've just de-shamed that because here's an incredibly capable woman, a PhD candidate with all your accomplishments, the wonderful person you are, and you called. And you, and it helped you, and listeners i I hope that de shames it for all of us if someone like Kate can call in her thirties with all she's been through fifteen years past her own suicide attempt, she can call, we all can call, and there's no shame in that, and there are people that are trained to take your call, my call kate's call and and I believe Satan's real, but I think one of his biggest tools is create shame and separate us from the resources we need to heal and to move forward and to and to confront our PTSD and our anxiety. And I love that you talked about bipolar in a positive way. Bipolar, if I did an unaided test in our world about how do you feel about bipolar and how would you respond to getting that, <laughs> being diagnosed with that or somebody in your life that has that, I think that'll be a generally concerning narrative, but I love the way it's still a challenge for you, but you understand it intellectually, how long it's going to last, but you also understand it intellectually and emotionally that this allows you to accomplish a lot of the things that you need to accomplish. And this may be a scar at some times, but it may be a great part of who you are that's meant to be how you're created. And it's not like something went wrong in your plan. I mean, Kate, you just have all these different parts of you that make you who you are, and you're unique and you're wonderful, and it's this beautiful, all these attributes that just come together to form you, and I think that's true for all of us, and some, for some of us, those attributes are very normal and the pre- predominant attributes in most of the human population, but for others... They're more of the minority attributes. Having bipolar is a minority attribute, you know, being non-binary lesbian. And even a Latter-day Saint, less than 1% of the population is Latter-day Saint. So if you want to be in a marginalized or a group that has underrepresentation worldwide, you're in that one too. And I just am struck with who you are and your life mission and your ability to help others. We Thank read you. this quote, and I'm going to turn it back to you. We read this quote a lot on the podcast, but it's who you are. A minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks. And I think that suffering represents scars, which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led at the desert by someone who's never been there. So one of your beautiful life missions is you just know so many deserts. Um, Not deserts that you cause to come upon yourselves, just deserts that are part of your life journey that shouldn't feel shameful, but have been. And I think you're helping to eliminate shame around those deserts that our listeners walk, including me, as I'm listening to some of your insights. It's very helpful. I hope that's okay. Thank Um, you. Thank
1: you so much. I'd love to just give it back to you
0: for more concluding thoughts.
1: Oh, no, I think that <laughs> that's, that, was, that was really, when I, we started the podcast, this wasn't what I was expecting to talk about. It's, it's not an easy thing to talk about. So thank you for allowing the space and, and um, the safety to, to talk about that.
0: Well, on behalf of our listeners, Kate Maurer, pre- future Dr. Kate Maurer, <laughs> you have a great life ahead of you. And you have accomplished so much. And being alive is one of your greatest accomplishments. And having the intellectual capability plus the heart and the understanding to me has made this all possible. And it's just a great, it's a great human success story. But I realize it's not done yet. But I do think all this foundational work you've done with all these parts of you allow your life mission to be possible. And it's multidimensional and it's needed. And I admire you stepping back into the church where the church has been triggering. I've learned to validate people's pain and why people step away. Um, and it's often because of very difficult experiences they've had at church. And it's it can be. And I just admire you being open and keeping your scriptures by your bedside. Did you, I hope all our listeners heard that, that even though... The church, had, you know, you'd stepped away and it created some trauma that you kept your scriptures there that could have kind of reminded you and could have been triggering for you at times. But you did that and allowed maybe that door to be open enough that you could have another experience that, you know, changed your direction there. And then you acted on that experience. But I love where you are. And I just, if you were my, I don't have any advice for you, Kate. I just keep being you. The world needs you. I hope you feel all of our hands on your back just saying, keep being you, keep doing this the way you're doing it. There's no owner's manual or roadmap. There's no one older you, that you can point to and say, that's the older version of me to know how to do me. But I think what you're doing is you're helping younger people, or maybe people that are even older that have less come aware to who they are and their life mission, be able to say, that is helpful for me to know how to move forward. So I hope our listeners felt a good spirit here, because um, there has been a good spirit here, and this is sacred ground when we come around our white table, um, around white table in our front room to do these podcasts. So this is. Keep.
1: Thank you for saying that, because <laughs> I I wanted it to be a spiritual experience. I hope it has been for for our listeners that it is, and if you can come back to it and it be a spiritual experience,
0: I it, hope so. Thank you. So this is Kate Maurer and Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.